right when the pandemic locked us down, uh, I, I made a video about uh, how to grow ginger in a container. Uh, and it was a 30 minute, it was just like a off the top. I was like, what What would be accessible for everyone who just got locked down? Yeah. Popular plant, easy method, you know, whatever. It's sort of a easy formula. Made that video in 30, 35 minutes or so. Edited it up myself. Didn't have an editor at the time. It's accrued like $80,000, $90,000 just in YouTube ad sale, in ad rev. Damn. So it's like a $180,000 hour, you know? Not counting all of the intangible downstreams of anybody yeah. else who brought the into table, the ecosystem. Yeah, the, the table yeah. stakes is that yeah. it made the 180 in an hour. Yeah. But I don't even care about that because the media business isn't the business, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's sort of the weird twist of this whole world, I guess. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen. Apologies for the lack of podcasts for the last few weeks. I had some medical adventures which were thrilling, enlightening, and gratitude inducing. And I'm back with some adamantium installed stronger than ever. I still don't know much and I still have some very smart friends. And listening to this podcast, no matter who, where, or when you are, means that you do too. An old friend is back again, recorded live from Capitol Camp. Kevin Espiritu. He is the founder and CEO of Epic Gardening. He built an empire over the past few years by growing his love of gardening into a blooming business. Our first conversation was episode number 16 of this podcast, and it covers how he built Epic Gardening to become one of the largest gardening media platforms in the world. And when we last talked, he was just on the cusp of accepting a large investment and doing some acquisitions to build out the e-commerce side of his business. And now we get to reflect on that. So our conversation, which was my first recorded in front of a live studio audience during one of my favorite events at Capitol Camp in Columbia, Missouri, we learned about and explored laddering up as a bootstrap creator, uh, which Kevin did an excellent job of, the synthesis of media businesses and e-commerce, which should be very exciting to anybody in either of those businesses, and his three recent acquisitions, in addition to the product lines that he started and built out on his own. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage technology companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Our conversation starts right after you hear about this episode's sponsor, Scribe Media. Listen closely. There will be a quiz. Scribe is the easiest and best way to write and publish a book. If you can write a Google Doc, they will turn it into a professionally edited, well-designed, and widely distributed book and turn you into an author. After evaluating all my options personally, I chose to publish two books with Scribe now, and I have every intention of coming back for a third. Everyone I worked with was exceptionally kind and talented there. I have recommended and referred many friends who are now published authors themselves through Scribe. So if you have an idea for a nonfiction book or even just expertise to share that you think could be a valuable book, or if you think a book might fit into and help you improve your career, please visit scribemedia.com slash miles to schedule a call with an author or strategist. They will tell you all the options across all the publishing industry, including traditional and other self-publishing options, and help you pick the best path for you. The link is in the show notes. Click on that, fill out a short form, and hop on that call. You'll learn a lot just from taking a 30-minute meeting to learn about the options for publishing your book. There's no commitment. There's no hard sell. It's just learning from an expert who happens to work for Scribe I recommend them often. I believe in what they do. And I think this model is the future of publishing. Now, with both ears and everything in between, join our conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. We're rolling on the first ever 
live studio audience version of of smart friends and a longtime friend kevin espiritu live from capital camp very excited to be to be pioneering this our second session today you they've been keeping you incredibly busy because mm -hmm. you're a unique breed here i think you're a creator you're a founder you're an incredible capital allocator and i think kind of no matter where people are coming from there's something interesting in your story for people to apply on their own so especially love stories with with humble beginnings and i know yours has one from part-time blogger to to here we are so yeah you start started from the bottom let's go let's go yeah sure so i mean i'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible on the run-up so to speak but really I, I came out of college with an accounting degree didn't want to use it because i had played <laughs> online poker in college to pay for school so when you're doubling an accountant salary in college you're not really wanting to sign up for the 80 hour weeks at deloitte afterwards the problem was i didn't know what else to do after that and so i played poker for a little bit after college but once that fell away i mean the next closest analog is video games which is you know any any poker player at least i can speak for myself but many that i've met hyper addictive personality hyper fixating personality and when that leaves something must supplant it mm -hmm. for me it was video games would have been great if it was like hedge fund trading or something it just it was not and so i kind of fell into that in my early 20s not the best use of time and got into gardening as a way to kind of pattern break myself back into the real world a bit was it an intentional move towards a positive sum game or did that was that not a a model that went in hadn't thought about it okay. no really hadn't thought about it i mean i just needed something that got me off the computer and out into the real world and so yeah. with my brother i gave him a bunch of options I was like we surf we can skate we can surf stuff in california kids and he's like what about gardening i was like why that out of all the cool options i gave you he chose gardening but <laughs> anyways we we started growing and then I, I just got absolutely entranced by it like the the natural systems of the world just fascinate me yeah. there's so many analogs to the business world i find and so yeah i started a blog back then it was like maybe 2013 or 14. it's just, just a hobby blog just nothing special. I was doing web design for local clients at the time. And it just kind of puttered along being a hobby. No master plan. No master plan. I mean, I, I was like, it'd be great if it had some income. Sure. Like to subsidize the time that you go into it, whatever. But, you know, tried, tried some startup stuff, raised a little bit of money to do this like relationship personal assistant app that was well before its time and also very poorly executed. So not a lot of wins <laughs> on that particular one, except the learnings. And then ended up kind of hanging my hat up and saying like, maybe I should actually go work for someone, learn how, learn how companies work, learn how they run. So I was number two at a company called Scribe Media who did your book, who did. Yeah. Scribe now sponsors this podcast. I just visited the well, office there you go. like last month. I'm a huge fan of theirs. Very, yeah. very interesting company and learned a lot there. Incredible. So I was number two there, built out a lot of the early stuff, certainly take no credit for what's happened afterwards. And then when I left, I actually thought I was going to farm. I was going to sort of aggregate mm -hmm. urban lots, farm them in this sort of decentralized way and then sell that produce high high value crops to like local markets and 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 farmers markets and stuff like that but i had this blog mm -hmm. and i was like i would prefer to not draw my savings down to do that business so i'll make this blog make some money first so scaled the blog up a bit got it to a self-sustaining level and i was like actually i really enjoy this i, I enjoy consuming and, and disseminating information and sort of translating it into a way that makes sense for me and hopefully other people you say self-sustaining financially or yeah. was that the point that it was operationalized it was it was a bit of both i wouldn't say it was highly operationalized at that okay. point in time but yeah. but it made enough money for me to not have to draw down my savings on anything else like i could yeah. live off of it right yep. which is all most people want i think at, at the early stages of their career especially when building that's the something. master plan that's yeah. the idea is like <laughs> if I, I can just do what i'm doing and, and enjoy it then I'm, I'm pretty happy yeah. but what i started to do after that is i was like look I'm, I'm good at this and i like it a lot i like communicating i like creating content and so i started expanding to platforms right so then youtube came 2017 the podcast came was your daily show and then and 
2017, 2019 or so was the content scale up. So we, you know, we hired a few folks, just like some contractors, a couple contractors to help run that stuff. And then in 2019, plugged products into the business, which really exploded the business, especially in advance of, of COVID, which, you know, gardening and baking and carpentry, all these like home-based mm-hmm. hobbies really exploded. But fortunately, I had the infrastructure in place to actually service an e-com business at that point in time. And so then we went from like, you know, 500K in revenue in 2019 to 2.8 million to then 7.5 million on the same team. And then we get to the point of last year, 2021, sorry, where we raised some capital. Yeah. And the majority of that growth came from, uh, the revenue growth came from the products and the e-commerce side. Yeah, absolutely. So like year one, it was half our revenue in year one. And then year two was 80. And then year three was like 92% or 93%. That's amazing. And so I was like, okay, well, what I thought was a business wasn't the business. The business is actually servicing the customer with the product. The audience is now the customer instead of making the audience the product, which is most content models, the audience is actually the product, right? So it was it was a nice this, this is better for the audience. They get a more authentic relationship with the products that they're buying. Yeah. It's better for the product business because they're not paying someone else's audience and trying to gain trust. Like yeah. The synergies between these businesses is what fascinates me and what keeps bringing me back to it. And mm-hmm. you came to it through this really organic path, which I think is yeah. so, so interesting. But once you see this pattern, I think it's it's hard to resist seeing those opportunities in so many other places, whether it's either already played out in some variation of your story or whether it's an opportunity that's available to brands, commerce businesses, or content businesses. Like no matter where you start, there's a move towards towards that kind of symbiosis. I think so. I mean, I think what I found interesting during that time, because I was definitely running a bit of a different playbook than what was in vogue at the time, like scaling up D2C businesses by raising a ton of capital and LTV and CAC and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Whereas I had no CAC, my CAC was positive because it was it was the content. So I was like confused at why they were doing it that way, but also they were well at a scale that I, I could not reach on my own. Mm-hmm. But for a lifestyle business at the time, uh, obviously that was great. But yeah, I mean, you, you touched on something really interesting where it's like the audience content fit as a substitute for product market fit, right? So if you get that part right, then just, you, you don't need to be a genius to find PMF after that yeah. because they're going to find it for you because your audience likes you and trusts you. And so they're going to give you feedback on products or services that you put in front of them. And then you just go give them the one that they like the most. Yeah. You know, the very practical example of that you gave is like uh, every time I post a video with this product in it, I get comments asking, where can I buy it? It's not rock. Yeah, it's like, not special <laughs> sauce. It's hard to just, trick yourself when that's the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and we've done that time and time again. I mean, the, the product that exploded yeah. us was a raised bed product out of Australia. It was the same thing. It just over-indexed in every piece of content. Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? And I'm like, let me find out where I got it. And then let me do a deal with them so I can give it to you. Yeah. Same same with some of the products we develop ourselves now. We, we acquired a seed tray company. Mm-hmm. And I hired the guy as our product lead because we were dropping as much as we could make in a week and it would sell out in like 90 seconds or so. And so we obviously we ballooned to like almost all of this guy's revenue. So I was like, well, just join the team. It's gonna be more fun over here anyways. We could make it some amazing stuff. But again, that was something that I didn't need to create the product. I needed to find the guy who had the product and, and sell it into the audience. Now, of course, we're creating our own product from scratch now. So we're trying to go into product dev, but I didn't have to, to get started. Yeah. yeah. Does that seem riskier, the product dev approach or do you feel the same pull from the audience when you... It, well, what's tough now is you can't, you can't float it in front of the audience as quickly because mm-hmm. now there's actually people watching us do that strategy and out competing us on, on execution, perhaps sometimes. Mm-hmm. So like the copycats will start to come in if you start doing that too much, but we still have a competitive advantage on showcasing stuff to the audience that are, yeah. you know, we, we have like a two, 300 person like ambassador list that we can send product to and get uh, feedback on, like all that kind of stuff. 
So I think there's some advantage, but yeah, the risk is definitely higher now that we're developing product because we don't absolutely know it's going to work. We just are pretty sure it's going to work, you know? Yeah. It's something that is a, a, sm a small, maybe meta aside, but something that I've always admired about your, your story and I've watched you sort of grow over the years. I'm going to sneak as many gardening yeah, charms yeah, as I can. There's so, there's so many ways to <laughs> yes, do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Organic growth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You alluded to it, but like in the zeitgeist of, of zigging, you were zagging. And I think that's mm -hmm. just, you are a very, you're independent first principles, sort of like, I'm going to take the next step that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And it gets you to these really interesting places where like the, the common knowledge is kind of like, oh, you got to have a, you know, 3X CAC to LTV. Right. You got to have a growth agency. You got to have a competitive advantage. You got to have a customer oriented like product brand. You got to hire Red Antler to do your, you know, fucking brand for mm -hmm. three thousand million dollars yeah and and you just i'm sure it maybe felt like plodding along at the time but you were like here's the next obvious turn here's the next obvious turn here's yeah. the next obvious turn no large risks no outside capital until you really no. had the high ground in that deal right yeah, yeah i didn't need that deal definitely and told him that a lot <laughs> before we did the deal <laughs> it's so, a good strategy yeah i was like yeah. come on like i don't what am i gonna do go home and make eight million bucks like yeah. uh -oh, oh no what a, what a terrible life that is oh, you know my batna yeah, know, right? terrible, yeah so so anyways it also like i don't know luck is such a big part of all of the things that everyone does like mm -hmm. to be negotiating in the tail end of 2021 was like pretty optimal right yeah. but yeah i mean i think I certainly wasn't zagging like trying to zag and, and trying to be contrarian or anything That's like that. I, mean, I just yeah. literally wasn't plugged into the common knowledge world that you know, I was in my backyard growing vegetables and making videos about it and like selling product. And I live in San Diego. I don't live in SF or, you know, Austin or New York or any of these more common areas of like talent concentration. And so, you know, I learned stuff on Twitter. I learned stuff on the internet and just sort of plugged it into the business as it made sense. And yeah, you're really, you, you are right. Like not a lot of risk at any point in time. Very, very obvious high returning moves every time, just sort of compounding. Yeah. So bootstrapped for six, seven years. Yeah, six, six, seven years or so. Okay. Yeah. And then, so let, let's talk about that sort of Rubicon of, of taking capital. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to. Like, what did it enable you to do that you couldn't have done otherwise? Or, you know, why, why were you willing to take that? Yeah. So like I said, like I really wasn't at the start. I was, I was saying another talk earlier today. I was like, I don't know how investors know when a company somehow is investable, but all of a sudden you reach a certain level of revenue or notoriety or something and everyone just knows it. Hmm. And your email inbox just somehow fills up. I don't know how you guys do that, but somehow <laughs> that's possible. Anyways. So yeah, you know, I got, I got, I got the call from the churning group and obviously with their portfolio, like Barstool, Meat Eater, Hodinkee, it's, very, very much up their alley. They this understand is, this business. Yeah. What's the, the playbook that they have for those that are unfamiliar? Yeah. It's, 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 they, they call it content to commerce, but basically they're just saying like, if you're, your organic audience, I mean, in business speak, it's basically your organic audience art of like art just lowers your CAC. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the word of mouth and the affinity goes way up and that's a extreme competitive advantage against like, I don't know, a Casper mattress or something like that. Right. Yeah. Where they just have to buy every customer. And oftentimes they're not first order profitable either. So they're banking on some sort of backend monetization and they're just like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like it's, it's hard to make that business work yeah. unless I guess you continually raise and somehow exit out of one of those raise rounds or go public and liquidate and mm -hmm. you won, but the company actually didn't win. And right. so, yeah, that's, that's effectively their model. I mean, they come from media, right? Peter Chernin, CEO of Fox, right? So they come from media and they understand that world really well. And they, they figured out ways to plug 
plug, plug commerce into the back end of it. Yeah. And, and they invest in sometimes just media properties, sometimes media plus commerce with yeah. the intent of, of adding commerce. I think they would, I think I, I don't want to speak for them, but I think they prefer to invest in the media side if mm -hmm. they can, because that's in their estimation, the harder one to get. It's the more talented thing to build than the product side, mm -hmm. especially in the consumer space. So yeah, if they, if they can, they, they would prefer to do Does that. Does it seem risky to, to add a higher margin product line to an existing media property? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and in your experience sort of working with them, how do they, how did they change the business? Was it, was it sort of a like capital only transaction? Did they bring some talent or? Well, I think the network was insane. Like the, mm -hmm. the people that they know, especially in specifically things that would help me and my business is just, I, I could have met them at some point after slogging through, you know, networking or whatever, but, but you know, the instant plug in to, to that network was extremely valuable. Certainly like, you know, we, we have a contact at Meta we can just talk to now instead of me yeah. having to like, you know, email them a million times. Like some of that friction Huge. starts to go away, which is really yeah. nice. But yeah, obviously the capital helped quite a bit and, and the connections to getting talent, I wouldn't say, you know, they directly put talent, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, the connections to getting talent was super, super helpful. What did the capital unlock for you as an operator? So we got to do some acquisitions that I, I, it's either like inventory or every other part of the business. And so in this case, we did not have to make that choice. And so we got to do the acquisition I, I talked to you about with the seed company or seed, the seed trays, yep. excuse me. We bought a blog, right? We recently bought a blog and yep. folded the owner in as our director of search running our entire search strategy. Yep. So I couldn't have done that without having to sacrifice on what inventory or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And so we got to scale slightly ahead I think last year is the only year we ever lost a tiny amount of money, mm. but also we had like 800,000 or a million bucks in lawyer's fees from three different <laughs> transactions. So it's yeah. like, okay, well they adjust. It's actually not really the, yeah. it's not a real true, you know, loss go forward. But yeah, I mean, I would say it allowed us to do a couple different things that we wouldn't have been able to do to speed growth up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and are you able to attract different talent? Like, is there a perception of safety with that's the, the craziest scale? part to me yeah. is the stamp, right? Mm. Like, I mean, I'm sure you saw this, right? When you wrote, the almanac of Naval, and I've I've done three books, but in gardening, so it's a bit of a different world. But either way, you Much have prettier pictures in yours. Yeah, beautiful, yeah, right? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, but full any, color. Yeah, full yeah. color. You know, really nice shots. But what I noticed in in book writing, we we saw this at Scribe as well. Is books have this weird like binary chasm that when you pass it, it's like oh he's an author, mm -hmm. right? And it's a, it's the same with this. Like the investor stamp in this particular category opens up a lot of doors for getting talent. It's like, oh, it's a TCG company, whatever, right? Yeah. Same as like, I don't know, if Sequoia or Andreessen invest in you, you get yeah. something that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise for simply the fact that they did it. Yeah. Yeah. And Churning Group has that sort of uh, in that credibility world. in that world. In that world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So let's let's do a little generalization mm -hmm. brainstorm because I think, you know, we're both broad business nerds yeah. here <laughs> and in seeing this pattern, applying it to, to other people, like from our first conversation and from when I saw sort of the emergent properties of what you were building, it totally changed how I thought about my business and how I prioritized. It, it gave me much more patience with, with like this podcast, much more patience to see the feedback loops between, you know, investing in a long-term media growth. And I think, I mean, we're sitting here at Capital Camp in one of the babies of Brent and Patrick, and Patrick is maybe the best example of creating a media company that is the golden goose. Yes. And like, it just keeps producing these eggs. You know, he sold the, the fund that he ran before, he's expanded the podcast horizontally, continues to invest in those, grow the network, 
produce new businesses out of it. Like the, the new venture capital fund, the, the feedback loop between all those is, is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have, let's, I'll, I'll go back to myself just because that's what I do is, is guarding. It's like you, you have the attention of some subset of some audience, right? Maybe it's the whole category. If, if you're big enough, maybe it's like specifically B2B SaaS or something like that. Yeah. If you have that, then the, the market is just giving you information 24 seven in a way that they're not giving it to everyone else. Right. And so if you can see that, then you can just apply that to like, you know, Patrick's a fantastic example with the podcast. Yeah. So he has a media entity now, right? He has deal flow that he probably wouldn't have otherwise. Like this camp exists, and we're probably all here because of some Talking version. About him. Of, yeah. yeah, because of some <laughs> version of the content that he's that he's created. Yep. And content compounds at such a insane and weird way. Yeah, it's like very chaotic. The the things that spit out of it, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is so interesting about it. Yeah. Well, this dive deeper on the B two B side because I think this is it, creators. If you stop at the creator business model. It's not always a super compelling business. It is a, for the really high scale people. Mm -hmm. It can get really high margin and you hear the crazy stories, but there's a power law there. Mm -hmm. If you can cultivate like a small niche and if you can attach a high margin or a even a higher dollar value business to it, creator businesses or interests or projects that don't necessarily seem interesting on their own are all of a sudden not just self-sustaining, but fantastic. I businesses think that, I to think own so. fantastic investments. I guess it depends on your, I'm certainly not an investor only by way of like some of the stuff we've done within the company, but yeah. I guess it depends on what kind of returns you're trying to get or, you know, the hundred X's maybe there are very few hundred X's or more in, in the creator space, unless you're somehow early at, you know, Jimmy and Mr. Beast or something like that, which yeah. he, he would not let you do. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. B2B and I just recently saw there's there's the you're familiar with Workweek, mm -hmm. right? So they're sort of network of mostly Twitter plus newsletter type creators in in business. Like there's a franchise guy, there's like a healthcare guy, et cetera, right? I think I just saw them launch a franchise SaaS business underneath one of the guys. And it's the first time I've seen it at least. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense because he has a very, very captive audience of exactly the customer base who would who would buy that. Mm -hmm. So at the very least in that business. I'm sure other acquisition channels need to need to activate for it. Sure. But at the very least, he has a version of what I have or, or any of these other creators have. Mm -hmm. He should have absurdly low acquisition costs, at least at the start. Yeah. Yeah. And from a position of really high optionality, you mm -hmm. know, like that, it, I wonder about the thought process that went into that particular, the decision mm -hmm. to start that business with that model to that audience and sort of what pieces came together to form it. I wonder, I mean, I, I'm really not a B2B guy, so yeah. it's it's hard for me to to postulate here, but I would imagine that when you're a creator in that space, typically written text platforms play a little bit better. So mm. Twitter is where most of those folks are. The YouTube audience is strong, but not it's certainly the niche. You, you have to go a bit more broad on YouTube to make it work. Yeah. And so I think it's probably because the newsletter model does hit a natural cap in scale. And if you're trying to do something bigger, you simply have no other choice than to try to incubate some actual, excuse me, that's kind of rude, but some sort of more <laughs> substantial business beneath yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You certainly hit a, maybe a ceiling unless you're mm -hmm. Joe Rogan. Well, um, yeah. like take take me, for example, like if I didn't put products in, I would say this year, the, the media side of the business probably makes like two million bucks or two and a half or three or something like that, which Even is like with full focus and excellent execution. And, I would say yeah. probably still. Yeah. Uh, and that's like in the gardening space. That's actually pretty good for the Internet yeah. where we're at in the category we're in. And that's a great business to own. As absolutely. A, yeah. Bootstrap, yeah. Solo, founder, like, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's you're you're absolutely retired for life based on how most people spend money. If you yep. invest that in any reasonable way, you yep. know, but if you decide to plug something in beneath it, then that's 
that's where you get into this this whole game. Would would uh, early Kevin like with a blog have taken seed capital? No, because there's just no reason. It's just all there was sweat. no master plan, so that's kind of nonsensical, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would. You, you really shouldn't, I would say, because you've mm -hmm. taken it at the absolute earliest point and probably given up a decent chunk and, and just sort of like, why? Because you don't really need capital to start a blog. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's, it's kind of interesting because like if you find like we've we've homegrown a creator, right? My initial right. garden assistant is now quite large on on social and YouTube and stuff. And mm -hmm. he has a great sort of subset of audience. It doesn't overlap completely. Yeah. Overlaps a decent amount, which is its own problem. But, you know, we found him literally in the backyard gardening. He was a ge geology PhD, ended up leaving that to, mm. to come work for us. And he has a great life and a great business and certainly is making like triple to four times what he'd make as a PhD candidate or the life that he would live after that in geology. Yeah. And so you find that guy early and, and he's, he loves his life. And so that's, I guess, some sort of analog of investing early in a creator. It's like you can discover them and cultivate them or you can snipe like a star and that obviously has its own advantages. And I mean, that's like you have that opportunity because you built the golden goose, right? Like that's another all roads. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you take the classic barstool model, right? Yeah. If you go to barstool, like, you know, Alex Cooper went to barstool with the call her daddy podcast, right? And they got her relatively early. Dave saw it early. It was blowing up. He did a deal with them. That deal quickly became, I, I really don't want to speak for them, but like quickly probably became not the best deal because they got too big, too fast. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they tried to renegotiate and it turns out that one of the one of the people just left, got kicked yeah. out of the show because she just negotiated poorly and sort of treated that poorly. And then Alex Cooper sold it to Spotify for fifty. And it's and I actually asked some folks. I was like, "Wasn't that a loss for Barstool?" And they're like, "No, because every creator knows if you come there for that world, that's the on ramp to anything else you want to do in that world, whether it's with mm -hmm. them or or not with them." So sort of like in in the sports media world, at least for the internet, like all roads lead to Barstool to some degree, mm -hmm. and. And if you go there, like you're going to accelerate your career dramatically. And a lot of these creators don't want to be business operators fundamentally. Right. It's a win-win yeah. for them. De-risks like sort of that early chaotic mm -hmm. meritocracy stage where you just got to battle through yeah. as a creator, often probably losing money or. Well, there's a lot of stuff like you don't need to know how to edit at a high level, audio, video or text, right? Like yeah. thumbnails, we can help you with that. Like all that kind of stuff, yeah. the operational side of the content. Yeah. I mean, that's another place to give credit where credit is due to you because you you were the pioneer of each of these categories in your own business. Like you self-taught all the blogging, operationalized it, playbooked it, hired somebody to replace yourself. You dove into YouTube, learned how to edit, learned the thumbnails, learned what worked, operationalized it, brought somebody on, turned it over. Like over and over again, you have sort of yeah. started from nothing, taught yourself everything that you need to know, taught somebody else everything that you learned mm -hmm. and then moved on. Yeah. Over and over again yeah. for... Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to, right? Because yeah. otherwise, you're you're just doing low leverage work. Eventually, mm -hmm. like the start of learning YouTube is super high leverage, and then eventually it just decays to low. The tough part as a creator too, though, is like if you systemize everything, the soul leaves yeah. a little bit of of the content, and it's immediately apparent. Like the audience knows it mm -hmm. immediately, and then you know it when you publish it. And I've done it before. Yeah, like yeah, I didn't put enough time on that one. I didn't. I didn't. You know quality check the idea we shouldn't have even made that particular video like that kind of stuff it yeah. does start to leave so there's mistakes when you start to leave it behind so to speak but mm -hmm. otherwise what are you going to do i mean if if i'm you know buying a seed company that's probably what i should be spending my time on is closing that deal and not making the thumbnail for the video right yeah. so you have to have help yeah so where, yeah. where does that leave you today what is, what is the high leverage work and the low leverage work of your role as it exists now i mean this is a, this is a big company like it's yeah i mean yeah it's it's decent sized i guess what i what was shocking to me is like in the creator world like the numbers i was doing in 
you know, the bootstrapped world, I was like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't meet a lot of YouTubers or content creators doing more, doing more than that. Yeah. And so I thought I was like this baller. And it turns <laughs> out when you get into a different world, you're just actually a tiny little fish. Yeah. And you know, people don't want to work for you because the opportunity is too small. And you're like, what? Like, it seems, <laughs> seems pretty big to me, but yeah. you know, obviously you're the founder, you, you're, you're super biased. But yeah, I mean, I think these days, what's interesting is that literally this week we're, we're working on an offer to a, a COO. Mm. Uh, so someone who can help run a lot of the stuff that like I love and I think it's interesting, but I just probably still shouldn't be doing it. And so a lot of the like operations, the logistics, the you know organizational structure, the management layers, like all that kind of stuff. Like I think it's fascinating. I love learning about business and, and stuff that I don't know and, and can't really do quite at a high level yet. But at the same time, like I need to be cultivating talent. I need to be finding these little deals, finding these creators, like bringing them into the, the ecosystem, developing the actual product um, mm -hmm. because no one else can do that yet still yeah. at the company. Yeah. And so as you look forward for Epic Gardening over the next, I don't know, five years, 10 years, yeah, you believe you'll continue? I mean, you've done three acquisitions. They've all been very successful from a returns perspective, successful mm -hmm. from a cultural integration perspective. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll keep marching on that path? I think it really depends. I, I would prefer to not fire a bunch more huge bullets if I don't have to, because then that just makes whatever eventual exit there is a little mm -hmm. bit more difficult in my opinion, you know, plus dilution, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. But like, if I can make smart, small, you know, high returning acquisitions, why not? There might be some reason structurally, like why we have to, like the seed company is a great example. We were really distributor concentrated on a, a particular product line before the seed company. Once we bought the seed company, we diversified our channel revenue in half D to C and wholesale, as well as our category revenue in half seeds and hard goods, right? Mm -hmm. And seeds is recurring, which, which our other product line wasn't. So I was like, okay, that deal, that deal makes sense to do and, and take some dilution, take some extra equity and, and do that. If it's, if it's not existential, I don't really think I would like, like to do that though. Mm -hmm. I'd rather just, we, we have the capabilities now to, to generate this in-house. We, we can yeah. generate content in-house. We can generate product in-house. Now we didn't before. Now yeah. we can. So ideally you should just use that strength. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so let's talk about places where other places this playbook could work. And I, I can't yeah. remember if there's a conversation you, I think or, it works with you. or a Twitter, a tweet that you had about yeah. like there, I think there are a number of categories more than we expect that are going to end up sort of accumulated under individual creators almost yeah as the audience even though it's not always a great business or has a, a ceiling on that business it's the headwaters of success for a lot of other businesses in the category mm -hmm. and you've used that you've leveraged that over and over again i think there's a lot of categories that can end up bundled and we'll see more and more creators that either team up in a space yeah. or yeah. i mean team team up's a great example because you look at like logan paul and ksi and mm. whoever's making that drink right that prime hydration drink yeah that's a three-headed beast right there you know without any of those three it probably doesn't work that well and that's a hard like i wouldn't choose that i no. wouldn't choose to compete with coke and that like no. take on that kind of distribution problem and that kind of brand well, the challenge. only reason they can do it is because their distribution is absolutely insane enormous yeah, yeah. it's out and beast is obviously another good example of feastables and yeah. and beast burger and all that yeah but from like I actually prefer the scales are very different and they have such big audiences. They have to probably choose mass market things, but these are you know, just small order value things. These are not recurring. They're mm -hmm. not necessarily high margin. I think it's a much more interesting, both from a brand perspective and a, probably a returns and just overall business quality perspective to do, to think about specific categories, right? Like gardening yeah. where there's a, there's a much more 
much more alignment between the audience and the hobby. It's much more of an identity piece mm-hmm. than, you know, you know, energy yeah, like gar- drink. gardeners, gardeners identify as gardeners, like in their hearts, yeah. right? Like similar to, with like a carpenter or a blacksmith or, yeah. you know, a baker is another good category. Like, you know, food 52 is a good example of a, a watch is actually a really good example with Houdinki. Mm. Watches is like a fascinating category. You've gotten down the watch rabbit hole. A little man. bit. I think I got a little infected by the Hodinky vibe. <laughs> Dude, every, watch every time up, I yeah. open your Instagram, there's a new watch in there. I, yeah. I was like, this man is balling. No, I'm not. They're like not that expensive. They're <laughs> just like esoteric, weird watches. <laughs> yeah. Trick me. Yeah, yeah. Um, they look good. Hodinky's yeah. a much bigger business than I, I, I have heard whispers of it. Yeah. Well, they've got, they've got the the pre-owned market that they service. They do sell, they do collabs, which is really cool to be able to collab with like these historic watch brands. And then they have like an insurance arm as well wow. to the business. And so they're, they're adding a lot of different things to it. And did that start with yeah. the blog too? Was that a content genesis? I forgot how Ben Clymer's the founder there. I forgot how he did it. I want to say probably it was a blog at his time of, yeah. you know, sort of coming up, but I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so, so to expand the pattern, I, I think actually after we did the first podcast episode, I started applying this just as a mental model, sort of like testing yeah. it out more and more. And I ended up writing a post called Creator Capitalists mm-hmm. that was looking at specifically financial business models, because I think they are very prone to this, mostly because of the high level of trust that you need to create with someone. If you're going to have a deep financial relationship with them, if you're going to give them access to your capital, if you're going to let them have, enter a long-term 10-year illiquid relationship and started tracking some of the careers of people, you know, Patrick O'Shaughnessy is an obvious one. You could put Tim Ferriss in this category yeah. of like, mm-hmm. he was a blogger and author who made most of his money by getting angel access because of the influence of his audience and the talent that he had there. Jason Calcanis is maybe the OG here. He's like, probably the best example, I would say. A shitload yeah. of podcasts that yeah. are successful and profitable on there. He's a billionaire. He's still reading podcast ads three times a week. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, he's just hustling. <laughs> um, I don't know if he's a billionaire. That was off the cuff for yeah. emphasis, but I, it's, you know, it's a big thing. Started yeah. the syndicate, tons of access through that. Yeah, what's interesting to me about the uh, like the audience first model, right, is like it it really almost never ends up being the actual business, mm-hmm. right? The business is the second or third order effect of of that audience, right? I'm sure, like I, I'm actually curious, like with you, because I met you a long time ago on the internet, like yeah. with a f- six or seven people writing about mental models. Like I had a little blog, and so did you. Yeah, yeah. Like, you had Evergreen Library at the time, yep. and and then you were at Zarly for a long time, yeah. And then you did the Almanac, yeah. And how have you applied the the content sort of first model to what to what you'd obviously a book is content but yeah i mean the the evergreen was the high reps and and introduced me to a lot of incredible people just Mm -hmm. as a core of work of just kind of being like i'm capable of doing this Mm -hmm. and it is attracting the kind of people that i want to want to work with and be friends with the book i think is a much larger reach version of the same thing you know it it has never failed to attract the kind of people that I'm excited to have a conversation with excited to work with it is a i think a portrayal of my values even though it's not my words. Right, right. It's just, it's just a well, curation. You, I guess what I'm curious about though is like, given that like for myself or some of these other creators, like the, uh, the, the content ends up not being the main business. Like, do you think that the book or books, cause then you have more coming yeah. out, like will be the thing or will it open up access to the actual thing? I, I don't know. Like it's, yeah. it's a, it's a large portion today, honestly, like, yeah. cause the podcast yeah. is new and the fund is new, both newer than the books. Right. So yeah. I, I kind of feel I feel like I know with high confidence how to publish world-class books. Mm-hmm. I feel like a blue belt of a podcaster, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a yellow, green, or whatever. I don't know. I shouldn't use the belt analogy. Something lower than that. Something yeah. slightly lower than that <laughs> yeah. in, in the fund, just because it's, you know, I, I have partners who are 
much more experienced yeah. than I am, but it's a young fund and yeah. in the fund world, 20 years is, you know, sure. you, you only, you're, you don't even exist until you're three years in. But what, fund to world. me, what's so interesting about what you did though, is like you wrote the Almanac Naval, right? And you yeah. have, you have the other ones coming out. It's like, that is the exact, the, the consumer of that product, right? Yeah. Many of them are the exact type of people that would accrue value to that fund. For right. sure. On the founder side, on yeah. the LP side, and, and the podcast definitely it attracts founders, attracts LPs, and benefits founders. Like it's a huge boost to them. And yeah. often part of the pitch is like, when you're ready, I'll put you in front of yeah. customers, early employees, yeah. team press, that kind of stuff. That through to this me, because like, you know, is, I, I can often get, I hopefully, thankfully I haven't done it today, but like I get really annoying about gardening metaphors. Bring it on. You know, and so like to me, it's like, what what we built at Epic, for example, is it's effectively like a digital ecosystem, right? And so yeah. like, you know, you could think of the different platforms as different organs of the same sort of digital body and, and they mm -hmm. serve different functions, right? So like TikTok, for example, is it's not your conversion layer, right? right? That's more of your attention layer. So like maybe it's your eyes. And then YouTube is, you know, it builds more affinity and then it builds more LTV and all that kind of stuff. And But at the same time, the way they all interplay, they spit out unique results that you can't predict super well like the opportunity set that comes out of them is really sort of unique it's kind of the same in like the garden is instead of growing like you don't grow plants you create environments in which plants grow themselves right because mm -hmm. you're not inside the plant growing it. it it has its own genetic code it's growing itself mm -hmm. and so when you do that and you combine different layers of an ecosystem right trees shrubs so this the life below the soil the life above the soil you could you could analogize that to the content ecosystem that that you have created for example or, yeah. or me or, or a lot of these other people and it's like, it's, it is very emergent. It's like, oh, yeah. there's hummingbirds in the garden now because of these 13 things that happened that interplayed. And now that hummingbird finds this a suitable place to be. Yeah. And if I wanted hummingbirds, then that's a great surprise for me. Yeah. And I really like that, you know? And so that's, it's not a very methodical way of thinking, I suppose. It's very sort of open. It's a very systems way of thinking. It, it yeah. yields a certain control over specificity of ins and outs. Right. It's like, yeah. it, as long as the principles of what you're doing make, make se fundamental sense, like, what emerges as a result should directionally be good and you mm -hmm. should just be happy about that, I guess, is, is yeah. sort of how I thought about it. You mentioned sort of the diversity within the metaphor there. And I think something that you've done that's I don't see commonly done is you're on all the platforms, mm -hmm. which is not always good because you have to be good at all of them. You can't half-ass any of them, but gardening such a broad demographic yeah, and you kind of have this yeah. really wide funnel of it. I know you have a very large discord server mm -hmm. and you wouldn't think that that's, you know, necessarily the gardening demographic, but you also have people who only pay attention on YouTube or podcasts or whatever. And you were one of the early people who sort of convinced me of like, there's, there's people who love specific platforms and they will attract themselves to whatever content intersects with their identity and their platform choice. Yes. And it's your job to serve them no matter where they are. And in your business, they all, at the end of the day, they all buy seeds or they right. all buy. Well, I think, I, I mean, it's easy for me to say, I guess, because gardening is, it's really an analog. It's, it's like highly inefficient farming, mm -hmm. right? And we've been farming for thousands and thousands of years. So it's quite ingrained in human history. It's yeah. almost no one doesn't interact with it in some way or another. And so I think that you know, it's it's not, you know, B2B franchise software where, you know, maybe TikTok isn't that interesting, actually. Yeah. Maybe there aren't 10,000 people who want a Discord server on that. <laughs> so, but to some degree, like, I think it, I think it's true. Like, you should be absolutely everywhere that your potential, you know, customers or audience are yeah. doing the best that you can for them. Because word of mouth is really the only compounding engine that that is free, effectively, if you do your job well. And yeah. so if, just be everywhere and, and give them as much value as possible. I'm curious about your relationship with the word marketing. I don't think about it, I guess. We have one person in our marketing department hmm. and we have 10 in our content department. So yeah, I mean, I, 
it, w- that's not super fair. We, we do have an agency that we partner with. We do paid ads now. Yeah. So I suppose that they count. But yeah, I mean, I think the best marketing is done by the customer telling it to yeah. someone else as a result of connecting with what you do. Yeah. Uh, the question is how, it's just your point, like how far does that actually scale yeah. before you need to turn on other channels, which is why paid ads exist now, which is why we bought a business yeah. that has 4,500 stores worth of wholesale distribution. So if we can do a better job at serving them when they walk in there, that's another version of, you know, experience and content. Yeah. Impressions. I, I think the, the generalized sort of pithy takeaway that I had, again, took this from our first conversation, like market the paradigm of marketing is that you expect to operate a marketing department at a loss to benefit the bottom line Mm -hmm. and the paradigm of a media department is that you expect it to be standalone profitable on its own and has to live or die on the attention that it earns and the trust that it earns which can only yield to the rest but the best marketing department is actually media i think so i mean i think so and i think that's just a choice though like you could you could run your media your content empire at a loss too Mm -hmm. and say well it's because it's really effectively the marketing but there's ways to monetize the content that don't destroy the ability of it to convert to the consumer on an actual sale so to speak and you're not just monetizing the eyeball or putting a brand in front of them you can do it thoughtfully enough so that you can stack the models such that they're not like whoa this guy's really injecting on me all these different you know things sometimes it happens but you can you can do it pretty well do you think it's harder ha- having come from having built media first and attached commerce? Do you think that is an easier path than starting with a, a product business and being like, "Oh shit, I don't want a marketing department. I want a media department. I'm going to put the impetus on them. To, I'm going to generate a media business." I think if, if you look at the evidence of the companies that are succeeding right now, at least in my small corner of the world, it certainly seems like the harder skill to build is the media chops than than like especially in consumer like especially if it's not consumer electronics or something a little bit more involved, it seems like that there is a science on how you make product. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. defined. There's a product development process, all that stuff. But but coming up with a captive audience is the scarce resource, right? Yeah. Like which one's more scarce? I, I feel like it's being able to generate audience. Yeah. Attention. I mean, the it's almost a, if you apply this sort of AdWords click bid model for attention, mm-hmm. it's it's not that we're bidding for it anymore. It's that the highest quality content gets the attention and the person with the greatest ability to monetize that attention or greatest willingness to pay for it is mm-hmm. most willing to invest in that and will eventually either purchase that space or supplant them. I think so. In, yeah. in gaining the attention. Yeah. And it's like speaks to the, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, right? I mean, the content compounds at such an absurd scale yeah. that being early is, is so important. Like, you know, for us, you know, TikTok, has it driven a ton of business for us? Probably through direct traffic that we can't quite attribute perfectly, even with some of the better models out there. Yeah. But it's done incredible for us as far as like community building and weird versions of word of mouth. It's it's why we got media opportunities we wouldn't have gotten. Like we're on Good Morning America three times because specifically of TikTok, right? Interesting. There's specific campaigns we've been able to do just because of that. And the only reason we're at the size we're at there is because I got on early enough such that there was a dearth of content and gardening among almost anything. Everyone was just dancing at the time, right? It's like yeah, yeah. almost in the musically era era. And so it's like, okay, well, I could make the worst gardening content on TikTok. It's still the best because there's no one else here. Yeah. Right. And so every everything accrues to you the earlier you get on a platform, right? Like the early Twitter users, like they're massive. You try every new platform. Yeah. 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 You have to. I mean, so, like I will say I give up on some sooner than others like be real you know like i don't see how that one actually (laughs) scales well for us or club clubhouse during the the pandemic times 
I was on it for like three, three or four weeks or so. And then I was like, I actually don't understand how this works once we can leave our homes. Yeah. So I, I got off of it, but yeah. Also that one clubhouse was tough because you, you have to be on it when you're using it. It doesn't persist. Yeah. Uh, no, so no, evergreen sell. no long tail to it. It's hard to sell. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I prefer evergreen. I want, as you do, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want every hour I spend to pay dividends for a very, very long time. Yeah. I mean, dude, oh, here's a story. I mean, we, right when the pandemic locked us down, I, I made a video about how to grow ginger in a container and it was a 30 minute, it was just like a off the top. I was like, what, what would be accessible for everyone who just got locked down? Yeah. Popular plant, easy method, you know, whatever, it's sort of a easy formula. Made that video in 30, 35 minutes or so, edited it up myself, didn't have an editor at the time. And I think it, it's accrued like 80,000, $90,000 just in YouTube ad sale in ad rev. Damn. So it's like $180,000 hour. You know, not counting all of the intangible downstreams of anybody yeah. else who that brought the into table, the ecosystem. Yeah, the, the table yeah. stakes is that yeah. it made the 180 in an hour. Yeah, but I don't even care about that because the media business isn't the business, right? Yeah, and so that's that's sort of the weird twist of this whole world, I guess. I, I think there's a all of your stories, not all. A lot of the patterns I keep hearing is like, well, we underwrote it to X. Yeah, and that made sense all on its own. I know I can break even, and I have 98 percent confidence or whatever that you know, number is that it will break even, mm -hmm. but I know that I have 20 other ways to win that this was probably going to trigger one or five or 10 of, even if, even if I don't even know what it did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just, I don't know. It seems like a sensible way to approach yeah. bootstrapping is yeah. like, if the, the first sort of reason to do something makes fundamental sense and isn't super risky, like let's say buying the blog, right? You pay yeah. X amount, it returns Y amount over Z period or whatever. And you're like, that's acceptable to me. And the risks of doing it don't make me scared. Well then, okay, well that underwrites on its, on its own. And like you said, I mean, what could come of that? Well, I could find a writer that's on the blog, right? That happens to be a good video talent, which we already found. And she's being tested to, to become one of our creators, right? Or just like half every metric from D to C flow through from organic to, to, to the end, the, you know, the end checkout, right? Yeah. Just assume it's all cut in half because somehow the conversion funnel is like really poor. Mm -hmm. Cut it even in a fourth, right? Yeah. We did that and I was like, this returns in a year just off of that metric. And so I'm like, yeah. okay, it doesn't, there's like 14 ways it returns itself very quickly. So I'll, yeah. I guess I'll just do it, you know? Yeah. So I, yeah. Thankfully I can think that way and I'm not a modeler. So I don't, you know, that's, <laughs> this is my way around having to model things. I just go, if it works like 17 ways and I think it, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and do it. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's Charlie Munger quotes all over the place of like, you know, if it doesn't work out on a napkin, don't do it in a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. The spreadsheet brain, I don't understand. I'll say that much, you know, everything can be modeled. I'm like, I don't think that's true. I just don't. Think yeah. you can model everything like that. The other, the other Munger quote that came to mind is like, "Good businesses throw up easy decision after easy decision, and mm. hard businesses, bad businesses throw up hard decision after hard decision." And I, I, you know, I've heard a few times like every step felt obvious. Mm. You know, that seemed like an, an easy decision. The napkin math worked. Yeah, there's 14 ways to win. I think. I mean, I think there's like the counter to that though is like I could have grown a lot faster if I did any of the other classic playbooks. You know, mm. if I raised and tried to scale with paid and all these sort of things. But the ambi my ambition was never to do that. I just want to do something I love to do yeah. and, and, and let it scale to the point that it naturally sort of was going to scale to. And then obviously now we're playing a little bit of a different game. I think that authenticity matters a lot. You know, mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know how, do you feel you would have been successful if you had to do this in, I don't know, 
a category that you're not necessarily success, like passionate no. about. I mean, yeah. no, because that 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 is the ARB. Like the yeah. ARB is that the people do it because they love it and they yep. do it right to you yep. on video, text, and audio. Yep. And you feel, I mean, the weird part about this is a lot of it is a parasocial relationship, yeah. right? Like a lot of, I mean, you saw this earlier <laughs> Dude, outside today. this theater, yeah. a lady ran out of this coffee shop was yeah. like, oh my God, you're the gardening YouTube guy. Yeah, like, exactly. I've right. never seen anybody from YouTube of real life before. Yeah. Like I have to like, can we get a picture? Th that's the thing that, so that's the, first of all, that's really weird when it happens. It's <laughs> fortunately, I don't do something I think is like toxic to the world. So it's very flattering when someone comes up and yeah. says like, yeah. oh, like I learned how to grow this. Or you, you taught me how to grow tomatoes. Had, yeah, like, that's very, the most wholesome thing in the world. Very wholesome. Yeah. At the same time, like I've had many, many experiences which prove this out to me of how strong the parasocial relationship can be, yeah. which is it weirdly is the arbitrage. It is why people buy from you, right? Yeah. At the same time, it isn't real in a fundamental sense because someone will run up to me and be like, Oh, how, how are the chickens doing? How's, you know, Gucci is one of my hens named Gucci. R.I.P. Like, oh. Gucci. She, she did pass away recently, unfortunately, but they would ask that, right? Yeah. They say, oh, I saw Gucci died or whatever. And I'd be like, how do you know that? I have no fundamental idea who you actually are as yeah. a person. You've somehow consumed hours of my life, much like I've done to like people who are at this conference, yeah. right? Like I've listened to a ton of your stuff and this is the first time meeting in person was this this event. Yeah, we have a you know? 10 year internet bromance cultivated yeah. in this week. So, so, so then when we meet, it's like, it was like the notebook. We like ran at yeah, each other exactly. in we, the rain. We blew kisses and, yeah. and a hug. <laughs> right. But the funny part we is both like, yelled, you're bigger than I thought at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, and also I thought I knew you more than I actually did. Right. Because fortunately I'm aware of the parasocial relationship, but it, yeah. that, that's, that is the weird arbitrage of this whole, whole creator world is you, you're building something that fundamentally both does and does not exist at the same time. Yeah. You know? I think that's a huge responsibility, honestly. And I like, yeah. I take it seriously and I have a much smaller audience than you. I mean, there's a, I think there's a responsibility to do it well. And I see people abusing the neurochemistry and yeah, some, some yeah. shitty stuff online. Well, there's um, a lot you can, I mean, if you understand, you know, like someone like Mr. Beast, right? He's just so deep into the algorithm. He's so deep yeah. into human psychology effectively that he understands color theory on a deep level, like all of that stuff he sort of just opts to not go to the dark side, yeah. at least too dark, right? And then there's obviously creators who, who do do that. Yeah. But it's kind of like, it's like how you got there is how you have to remain there in a way. Yeah. Like, for example, if you built an audience, let's say a as a super hot Instagram model, it's tough to build a million following there and then pivot to B2B SaaS. Like, it's just not going to work, you yeah. know? Like, the way you get there is the way you have to sort of remain. Your audience comes for a certain reason. Yeah. Which is back to the authenticity and picking something that you're very happy to do for the rest of your life mm -hmm. that you're deeply aligned with. Yeah, I, 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 I was trying to think about, like, can you imagine doing this in another category? And, like, probably not. Like, that's... Mm, I would say adjacent ones for sure. Okay. Like, I, I've done a lot of content and gardening at this point. Like, yeah, I, I don't not like it anymore. I absolutely love it. But, like keeping chickens or carpentry or baking. I love, I love skill sets, yeah. right? And so, you know, preserving and canning, like all that kind of stuff, like I will find creators to do it, but I will dabble, right? If we yeah. launch, let's say we launched like a, you know, a woodworking channel or something like that. Like I will go kickstart the channel and yeah. I probably might get really into it, but they're gonna have to pull me away from it to go do the main stuff. But yeah, if it was, I don't know, like, Pick a category I would be bored by. There's just no way you, you just couldn't get like me to do quilting, it. which is like quilting. one. Yeah, my yeah, partner guys, Al yeah. like crushes that, and his mom loves it, and he ran the hell out of that business, and that's an incredible mm -hmm. story. That's very similar to. It's you. very similar, yeah. right? Yeah, because she was early on YouTube doing that. She was very early yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, it is a family story, and they ended up growing up to buy a town. Dude, I got to get Al. I want you and Al to have a conversation mm -hmm. wherein Al convinces you to buy a town because that's what he did. He's bought two towns. I, I'm now. highly interested in buying. a we town. We can create yeah. the Garden City USA, yeah. and like it's a. Disneyland for gardeners and bring them in. It's a 
it's an incredible model. The visit it, come visit Quilt Town yeah. in, in Hamilton, Missouri. Is it named that? It is Quilt Town USA is the unofficial okay. like thing, but it is the real name is Hamilton, Missouri. It's an okay. hour outside Kansas City. Okay, got it. it. Twelve quilt stores. There's a there's a like buses of sixty year old ladies that come in and they do like slumber party all night quilting quilting things. sessions. Dude, yeah. they're they're setting up a boutique <laughs> hotel. He's got killer Airbnbs. They're moving restaurants in. The, the whole main street is like it, you know. It's a genius beautiful. idea. It's a, I mean, the way I've thought of tiptoeing into that is, you know, now that we sell in wholesale, hopefully we'll be able to sell more SKUs into wholesale. Yeah. And eventually it'd be nice to own a couple nurseries, yeah. right? Because you have this triple threat of you, you can you can run them as a back end distribution center. Yeah. You can run them as a content generation engine. And yeah. you can also, of course, just run them as what they are, which is a retail space. That's what Al says. He's, yeah. he's like 90% of our business is online. Yeah. But 90% of the marketing for on the online business is the fact that we own a town. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Similar, but it's, I mean, that my analog to that right now is my backyard, right? My backyard yeah. has like a coop, a pond, a greenhouse, like all this sort of stuff. It's so cool. Um, I was going to say like, speaking of authenticity, like this is your life. Like, yeah, you walk out and film that. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. like, yeah. It's yeah, because so cool. that's how I I, lo I love the fact that I can just go get eggs and yeah. eat them every day from my yeah. hens, you know? Yeah, your meal, like you'll post a picture of your dinner. is like, this plays 110% from my backyard. Yeah, it's, to the point where like what, we had a dinner where we did homegrown wheat into focaccia yeah. and, and roasted potatoes and eggs or something like that. It was like fully homegrown out of a suburban backyard. Yeah. You know, on a small very hunt. impractical. Like, you, you know, if you think about it's opportunity work. cost of time. Yeah. If I was doing any other business, that would be a bad use of time, right? But, I baked one loaf of sourdough during pandemic. Yeah. I was like, that is a $10,000 loaf of sourdough. I Fuck know. this. Hour-wise? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're baking sourdough, you should probably be writing, you know, apologies. Yeah, I was like, I should yeah. have been working that whole yeah, time. Exactly. But, uh, I don't know. I think I'm. that to me is a harmful way to think, though. To me, if oh, I'm, yeah. to me, if I'm not working, there is no hourly cost to my time anymore. I just yeah. delete the model the, out of my head. The only place that it's useful is in buying back leisure time for yourself. There you go. Like it's a yeah. really tough to measure, yeah. to measure it at the right times and value it at the right times, yeah. but not think about the fact that like, yeah. you know, cook dinner for your family. Well, like, I found it harmful to think that way in po when I was playing poker, because when you're playing poker, you have a very quantifiable hourly rate. And if like, let's say you get in a good game, right? Like I used to VPN into these French websites, the French at a certain oh, point in time oh, oh. were just worse. Like they just oh. were worse than Americans at poker. It wasn't as sophisticated over there, you know? And and so you'd VPN into these French sites and play heads up, no limit against someone. And you're like, this guy is as bad as someone who's playing 10 stakes levels lower. Yeah. And so you sit there and you're like, okay, well, my expected hourly here is probably like a couple grand. Yeah. And then your friends are texting you like, come out, like there's a big party down the street. And you're like, yeah. is it a $3,000 party? Because I don't <laughs> think so, you know, so I can't go. And then I don't know, you missed, I missed out on a lot of college experience by making that trade-off yeah. uh, and then i go why did i do that should i have done it you yeah. know it's it's tough so interesting we're coming up on a hard stop eventually here but we, mm -hmm. we got a live audience and i want to i know we have the technical capability to take some questions here mm -hmm. so this is a experimental podcast first but we'll see how it translates Let's do um, it. if there's anything you guys want kevin to dive in deeper into or stories you want him to tell or brainstorms you want to kick off if anybody's got one Leo, thank you for making us not have to edit out an enormous silence <laughs> later. I'll repeat the audience question. You mentioned that sometimes you partner with products and sometimes you make your own. I'm curious how you decide when to partner, when to build something, and what's the decision-making process there? Yeah, so I, I mean, early on, the decision was that I just don't know how to make products, so that partnering was the only option. I think now we bias 100% towards owned and operated if we can do it if it if the capital outlay isn't too insane and the product development sort of timeline isn't isn't absurd we'll do it so like there's sort of three pipelines we'll run now one will be 
can we just develop a product in-house and do it at a reasonable cost and speed? That's preferred because then you can control everything. And with the business that we have in the wholesale side, obviously, the more you can control on that, the better margin you can give your wholesaler, and then that business actually works. So that's the preferred model. If we can't, for example, there's like a vertical planter that is really, really performing. It just like works really well. And so we're like, we can't make a better one of those. There's, we don't see a way to improve that. We'll do a custom color with them and we'll just, we'll just, you know, what first party fulfill that. And there you go. That's, that's about as good as we can do for that. Maybe we will develop a different type of vertical planner that does not directly compete. And then after that, the third sort of pipeline, which I would say is like maybe five to 10% of our products and, and maybe it trends to zero is we'll just drop ship an existing product, no customization whatsoever, because that's obviously the least defensible. I'm really curious about the combination of the CEO and the creative in your process. In terms of loving what you do and being fully present and also running a business and thinking about that, how do you scale those different sides? Yeah, I wish I wish I had sophisticated thoughts there. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, it was, it's been actually quite mentally challenging for me to go from December 21 was like me and four contractors, right? And then to, to scale up and have not only any layer of organization to the company, but multiple layers. And then to, especially when we got the seed company came relatively quickly, it was like 10 months afterwards, the, the team size and the revenue size of the company just immediately doubled. And so I've not run any company bigger than this one. And so I don't know what I don't know as far as like what what are things that CEOs should and should not generally do? And so, you know, feedback will come through the grapevine of like, hey, you don't need to like be in Slack, like getting to on this tiny little detail about this LP landing page or whatever. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll hear that. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm taking a lot of, of notes from, from people that are, that are smarter than me about that right now. Cause it's, it's difficult. It's like one day I'm doing meetings and, you know, trying to acquire something or having a hiring call or whatever. And then either the same day or later that week, I'm, I'm in the backyard, you know, talking about onions to a bunch of people. And so it's the, the context shifting is like very difficult sometimes to handle. You've really sort of taken this journey through various stages where what you're doing today feels quite different from what you were doing at the beginning or even the recent past along that journey. What's been the biggest surprise for you? Well, that's, in that's interesting. I never have thought what the biggest surprise would be. I would say that ge generally speaking, most things worked that I tried. <laughs> Most things worked. I mean, I think th there's some weird missteps I've had. Like I tried the whole ebook route and these sorts of like, I don't know, a little bit lower level, like marketing-y type things, but quickly sort of got out of those. I think like the biggest, biggest surprise is when I first jumped into product, when I bought the 20 foot container from Australia, it was like 35 grand or something like that. And I think the business had like maybe a hundred grand of capital in it. And I was like, okay, well, that's 35% of everything I have in this business. So if this doesn't work, it's not going to be ideal. Uh, and then I sold that out a week after I put the Shopify store up before it got to America and then used that money to buy two more and then sold that out before it got there. And I was like, okay, well, that like, not only did it work, but it really worked. So that was pretty surprising. <laughs> yeah. What does this business look like to you in three years if it everything goes according to plan? If you hit a home run in three years, what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the obvious financial metrics of, I mean, we're trying to go, we're trying to build a company that's doing hundred million a year or more, honestly, probably could be significantly more. I think if the, the play that we think makes sense actually plans out, which is, which is this wholesale like product development angle. So that would be ideal financially speaking. I think from like a content perspective, having a very diverse and broad set of really highly performant and beloved 
content creators across like a variety of categories and subcategories in gardening or adjacent, that would be ideal because that means like the fundamental risk to the business is now dilute, which is me basically dying or not wanting to do this, which is kind of speaks to the, as someone had chatted about, you know, TCG's decision to even invest or anyone's decision to invest in a creator led company. It's like, that is the biggest risk that you, I don't know how they're supposed to underwrite that effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fun. He's here for diligence. He didn't give a shit about your success <laughs> personally in two, three Shoot. years. I, I do think it's, it, you alluded to it, but it's worth stating very specifically. I think in this business, it's interesting because you've got excellent opportunities to grow both horizontally and vertically. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's a lot of high dimension space for this business to grow. And yeah. since it's coming from an authentic high energy place where you already have the audience, yeah. there's a lot of value well, dude, to be added in every direction. Think about this, like we've never created any course whatsoever, right? I mean, we could create, I mean, I know for a fact I can make the best course on how to garden. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yep. Let alone- And sell it the most. And sell it the most, let alone like I can get the guy who I know who grows, he's grown 4,500 varieties of tomatoes over his like seven year lifespan and yeah. be like, hey, you wanna make a tomato course with me? And this will be the best tomato course. Like we could spin up a seven figure, multi seven figure courses business at extremely high margin too. We're just not because the product stuff is a little bit more effective, you know? Yeah. And, and you can add a lot of products. And I think, I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's like we can do canning, we can do yeah. bonsai. Well, because we the do, fundamental, there's so much adjacent stuff. Yeah, the fundamentals of it, it's not gardening specific. I mean, yep. if you really like one broad way to think about this is you could just have a holding company of which Epic is one thing and you apply it to gardening, baking, fishing, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, down the line. Yeah. I was doing the same thing. We started with quilting. It's crafting.com and like oh. horizontally expand yeah, through, no, it, through a mean, lot of crafting. It, it makes total sense. Yeah. You touched upon it, but could you go a little further into how you made the churning group comfortable at the time of the acquisition when it was really just all about you, like you as a creator, not just behind the scenes, but literally on video in your backyard? How did you make them comfortable acquiring that? I didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I they I th I think that market was somewhat frothy. I don't know. I don't really know the investing side, but certainly 2021 seemed a bit wild. So I think they were excited to do a deal in a space that seemed untapped and no no one frankly like no one else in the space creator wise had had developed demonstrated commerce competency and so i think they were like let's go and i didn't seem crazy to them i suppose so you were the biggest creator in the space at the time yeah mm -hmm. by if you at that time we were i was not the biggest on every platform and now I'm the biggest, we're the biggest on every but one. I think Facebook, we're not. Okay. But yeah, like the aggregate dr was dramatically the biggest. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Were there any other buyers? There. I don't really know. I mean, it depends on how many emails I deleted, I guess. I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I just never advanced the conversation with anyone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The reputation is that strong? Yeah. Yeah. Or I was mean, it the approach? Like, did you, did you have a pre, did you already, were you already aware of them? And like, I, I mean, I, knew, I didn't know them, but I knew the companies they invested in okay. and I liked almost all of them. I mean, I'm not a big Barstool fan, but what they did, yeah. you know, business-wise is interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, do you, are you aware, speaking of other people, mm -hmm. of the other Kevins in other spaces? Yeah. Yeah. I have like a list of people that I'd be like, if I wasn't doing this, I, I might help them do oh, this. Cool. Right. Okay. Like there's this woman, Aquarium Info oh. on YouTube. She's like 3 million subscribers, absolute content master woman. Like it, it's quite pattern hacky a bit. Like she does do some of that sort of attention, sort of arbitrage stuff where she's like hooking you psychologically, <laughs> but like it's a aquarium. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it, but she, you don't even try. You just, I just, vibe. you just I'm pun just constantly. Just it's no, but like, Sorry. I mean, if you, you could spin up a, and she has, I think she's just doing like a drop shipped, yeah. like collab type thing. And I'm like, 
you don't realize what you're leaving on the table. Yeah. But also with these creators, they don't quite honestly give a fuck sometimes. They just don't yeah. care. Their life's yeah. pretty good. You know, I mean, that's another thing that's unique about you is the, the, the business mind and the creator mind in one. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I'm working on the Elon book right now, which is not a thing that I'm just talking do about. Just do improv work. comedy. That's <laughs> what you have to do. If you're, if you're a very structured thinker, just do improv comedy. You'll be fine. It will break you of that to some degree. That's what I, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things I did for like being you able to improv? create well. Yeah, well, like I did yeah. like 18 months of improv. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's underrated returns in being a, like a, an excellent multidisciplinary thinker. Like, it, it, you mm-hmm. know, I think part of what makes Elon magic is having all the engineering information and all the financial information in his head at the same time. It's a sole decision maker mm-hmm. and it is different than a creator who's like, you know, what you're talking about with her is like, she's an excellent content creator, even if she had an operator those two different brains need to agree on every individual decision mm-hmm. and you've been able to navigate entirely i think part of your success is having both of those in one and constantly making trade-offs between the two like to your question like what's hard about it is the context switching maybe but yeah. there's also some speed and some yeah singular vision that comes well, we that. switched our like i switched my entire schedule around to to oh, fix it because i would i would have days where i'd do like meeting 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 hiring and then film and i'm like this doesn't work that well i'm not super excited to go film and so we have like on shoot mm-hmm. days i have i don't do, i do not do any operational yeah. stuff at all i just like mess around in the garden yeah which helps a lot uh, so that's one way movie to star on yeah. yeah okay yeah exactly that's good I, and i hear that a lot too the, the compartmentalization of, of duties separate companies separate mindsets mm-hmm. something i mean I, I my my driving motivation and everything that i do is like this incredible utopian future which to me solar punk is like the best visual depiction of yeah and something that we talked about before was like these distributed gardening things and i think like just we as humans have this like natural response to interacting with biological things like when you stick your hands in the dirt it does something to you neurochemically that puts (laughs) you at ease it's it relaxes you it's healthy for you people talk about grounding like i think gardening can play an enormous role in a like high functioning where we well understand ourselves future and a yeah. lot more people can grow and we're surrounded by green all the time yeah uh, i have a, like I, I don't know i kind of have like a semi-contrarian view to like what the future looks like i suppose yeah. where i think the best tech sort of falls away into the background of life and allows right. you to live as the biological entity you actually are yes until like a singularity happens and we're not that anymore or you're brian johnson and you're a <laughs> hyper biological optimizer or something <laughs> like that like for the most part we what makes us happy has been known for thousands of years yeah tech just should enable that it shouldn't yeah. you know hinder that but laying on the know. beach swimming in the water mm-hmm. like eating the, eating some fresh delicious food eating walking sun on your body all that stuff yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so I, I like i don't know how I, I don't know how inspired by that future vision your day-to-day work is i know you just love gardening <laughs> but i see this fitting into an incredible version of the future and every time i walk by a lawn which mm-hmm. is a lot i'm like that's a fucking dumb thing to do with the patch of dirt i, in I front do of your think house. we'll look at lawns as sort of an atrocity especially in <laughs> like southern california lawns like really should be yeah effectively outlawed i mean in in my opinion i wouldn't go that extreme on most things but it's such an incredible waste of resources yeah fresh water it's wild but we'll have to see how it goes so i i i like a future that is where epic gardening has taken over the world a lot of people grow in their own (laughs) veggies or even the the community piece that we talked about before i think we talked i'm glad you didn't go down this road because it might have been an l but tokenizing community gardens and sharing responsibility (laughs) and some people can donate land and some people can pull produce i'm very glad i did not do that (laughs) that would have been stupid (laughs) yeah i don't know i think i think this is an incredible i think there's a long run for epic gardening ahead i think it's an incredible 
it's an incredible business, obviously, just from like a nerd capitalist business guy point of view. But I think it does incredible good for the world and all the people and all the fans that you serve. I think there's a lot to learn from almost any business about what you've done and how you've done it. I'm a huge fan of yours and, and the work that you do. And I hope I hope more people pick up a piece of that and carry it with them. Thanks, man. Likewise. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for doing this and thank you all for coming to listen. Appreciate you. Appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, you also love that previous episode I did with Kevin Aspire too, back episode number 16, back when this podcast was just a young pup. Um, you will also love my episodes with David Senra. He is a madman behind the Founders Podcast. He's a huge um, expert and believer in media, especially podcasting. So you will love those conversations as well. Um, again, please check out ejorgensen.com to learn about my fund, my newsletter, my other books, my other projects, and the link to that is in the show notes as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please leave a quick review and hop on to the next episode. Appreciate you listening. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.